Good day, good evening, good whenever. Dear listeners, it is time to record the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode, all driven by you and the fun bits that you send in each week for us collectively. I know those who send in questions, obviously you're hoping to get it answered, but also realize that your questions provide some entertainment. Who knows, maybe something we might learn about for the entire group. Uh, There's a decent amount of you. So thanks again for taking time to not only send in questions, but also to those who lurk and listen and just enjoy whatever comes in. A little bit of a maybe different episode this week in that I do not have my usual trusty Word document with all the questions cold and prioritized and just making things quick and snappy. A little bit of a uh, deficiency in that regard this week, so my apologies. What does that mean? It means that I'm going to read from the questions that came in on Facebook and Twitter, and I'll bounce around a little bit, and there'll probably be a few little mini delays here or there as I do so, but hey... The format from day one has been loose and conversational. If you want super tight, punchy stuff, uh, there's other stuff out there, and I hope you enjoy that. Here, we just get together and try and have a little family gathering and talk about our beloved sport, our beloved form of racing. That being IndyCar, going to say a huge thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires for supporting what we do here for the Justice Brothers as well and then torontomotorsports.com. Figure we'll dive right in. Uh, There are plenty of observations I will try and remember to share from spending, what, about 12-plus hours at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca on Tuesday for the IndyCar test there. I should say Monday. It's Tuesday right now. I'm a little bit out of sync. Um, Yeah, that was good fun. A lot of interesting stuff. Four teams, eight cars, and boy, uh, learned plenty. And so we'll use your questions to drive some of that conversation here. I'm going to get a little bit of music bed rolling in. Yeah, we just heard it, but let's hear a little bit more again. And where do we go first? Well, the big topic in terms of questions that came in from the test all involved a certain friend of the show, Mr. Juan Monterrier, also known as Juan Pablo Montoya, making his debut for the Aero McLaren SP team in the number 66 Chevy. Craig Hampson, another friend of the show, his race engineer, and Juan was the chosen man among the three drivers there. Pato Award, who was fastest on the day, Felix Rosenquist as well, was fourth, I believe, Juan was really, truly put in a place to use his phenomenal driving skills and setup knowledge to help the team gather information. So while he was among the slowest drivers on the day, I would just suggest that it wasn't a reflection of Juan's age or declining skills. Nothing could be farther from the truth. He, as I wrote on uh, racer.com, He wasn't there to light the uh, Laguna Seca track record on fire. He was there to provide deep insights on some pretty interesting things, starting with the aero mapping and the aero testing being done. 
you can say, hey, thank you, McLaren, right? This, although I haven't gone and done a photo comparison from recent F1 testing, I would say the odds are pretty darn good that if I did, I would find the same exact pressure mapping devices referred to as rakes. Uh, (laughs) For those who haven't seen them before, it is a fairly large array with grid a grid of many, many, many pressure taps. And looking at the devices mounted on the left and right side of the car, about a foot behind the front tires, just in front of the side pods, it looks like some sort of medieval torture device. You have the little pitot tubes that are sticking out from this uh, this rake, and although I didn't count them, you know, there must be 20 or 30, if not more, 40, who knows, uh, could be even higher on each side. And it is there to measure a whole bunch of cool things. Uh, you're getting speed, you're getting pressure. What you're getting is the ability to understand the aerodynamics of the car and how changes to the car then bring differences in the data that is being captured through the aero rakes. So, got a couple questions. Well, we got a lot of questions about it. Mike Jablo, for example, said, uh, enjoyed the photos and videos from the Laguna test. Can you please explain the aero mapping process you referred to? Uh, let's see. We had a couple others. Oh, Stuart Aerith is taking the mickey here early uh hey wasn't it a few weeks ago you said we wouldn't see that style of uh, f1 air rakes in any cars during testing how does it feel that air mclaren sp have now kicked you in the proverbial uh painful place um he then asked seriously is mclaren the first indycar team to do so i've never seen this before in indycar i was talking with a friend about that today i can't recall seeing a F1 style aero rake arrangement on an Indy car in this is a private test that happened, meaning it was a non-official Indy car test day. This is one of the handful of private tests as they're called test days that teams have to use. I can't recall seeing such a thing on a private test day that was truly something where they knew media would be there. Now, I guess a little bit of a delineation. There are private test days, meaning, nope, (laughs) no one else is allowed in. We have active measures to make sure there's no one camped out uh, with zoom lenses trying to photograph whatever secret things we might be doing 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Those kinds of days, it's very possible, Stuart. I would say that back when Chevy and Honda in 2014 and early 2015 were doing their testing for the upcoming aero kits, the manufacturer aero kits, 100% custom changes to the bodywork between Chevy and Honda, they did not allow anybody into their tests. And I would be fairly confident in saying you would have seen uh, rakes on their vehicles for sure and a variety of other aero measuring uh, instrumentation as well. So 
in terms of something where a team just at a test, either open test or private test, where other teams would be there and media would be there and they've done such a thing, I think this might be a first. Again, if someone else knows better, please uh, drop me a note. I would love to share that, but I think this might be a first. So I know that there are a couple other questions, and this is one of the things of not having everybody's uh, things distilled right in front of me, so I apologize if I'm not getting your name exactly. Um, Well, actually, Matt Philpott, sorry, I just found it. uh, He said, hey, I've seen a few comments about Aaron McLaren SP's use of the aero rakes, but haven't seen this question asked before. Seeing it as all cars are running the same aero kits, what benefits might a team derive from capturing data with a set of rakes and i know a couple of other folks sent in similar things so we'll ride with matt's question on the why uh isn't this a spec series why would you waste the time and money to do this well that's the exact reason you would waste the time and money to do this it is a spec series you have the most minor of differences allowed between the cars aerodynamics is not one of them every team must use the same exact components you can raise some things up and lower some things down and you can tune obviously the aero parts of the car that you are allowed to tune but nobody is allowed to have their own aerodynamic pieces on the car so as a result this becomes a really smart thing to do so let's stop and give credit to Air McLaren SP and this relationship between Sam Schmidt, Rick Peterson, who own the team, and partnering with the McLaren Formula One team, McLaren obviously now involved in IndyCar. This is bringing over Formula One testing norms and adding that into a series where indeed the person, the team, the people that can solve the puzzle better than the rest tend to be the ones that win. So what if everyone has the same car, the same aerodynamic options to tune, and a team like Air McLaren SP says, we feel like we know a lot. We feel like we know that when we make this front wing change, what it does to the car not only from a downforce and drag standpoint, but also from a balance standpoint. What does it do to the tires over one lap, multiple laps? What does it do to cooling? What does it do to, you can run through the whole um, range of possibilities. Well, what if we go and try to become the smartest people on pit lane when it comes to the aerodynamics of a spec vehicle everybody in the paddock knows a ton so again there's no question of whether everybody's really smart when it comes to aerodynamics the teams have vast knowledge the manufacturers have vast knowledge chevrolet and honda do a lot of simulation work do a lot of work to try and inform themselves each year every year off season pre-season all kinds of seasons They do tons of work as well, all of that to benefit their teams. Keep in mind there is a rich manufacturer war that's been going on for a long time between these two. So 
There's already plenty of information out there, but taking things to the level of F1 style rakes being installed and benchmarking the car and doing the kinds of things that most teams so far have not learning at that level, trying to be the masters of aerodynamic knowledge about a spec vehicle when everyone has to work with the same thing, that's where this is such a smart call by Aero McLaren SP. Watching and observing Mr. Monterrier doing his runs, there's, I won't waste a lot of time here talking about it. There are some pretty cool articles on the interwebs about it, but using these devices, you're not wanting to run full speed, maximum attack each lap. You're wanting to try and run at some uh, steady state speeds so that you can accurately benchmark the changes. Uh, if you're out there attacking each lap, speeds can vary. You oversteer, understeer, blow a corner. You know, the variables from a just driving standpoint can muddy the data a bit. So that's why the driver is not asked to go out and set uh, amazing lap times. Go out, go quickly, but these are the areas where we're trying to run at a steady state of speed to capture good data. So watching this take place, one would go out and run X amount of laps with the car and whichever aerodynamic configuration they'd chosen, would come in, pit, motor left running, nothing else done to the car other than adding, and I'm just, I was watching from behind, so I'm remiss in saying exactly how many turns of the uh, front wing outer end flap adjustments, but uh, say one turn of front wing or two turns, go back out, run however many laps it would be, three, four, five, pit, keep the motor running. You'd see the mechanics run up, do the same thing, add a couple more turns, off he'd go again. And so it's just making small change after small change after small change to see how that affects the air traveling over the car. Uh, from obviously hitting the rakes backwards and being able to assemble some really impressive CFD modeling, do some pretty interesting things in simulation. Hey, as we crank in more front wing, the rakes are gathering aerodynamic information that give us visual understanding of how the airstream is changing as a result, pressure raising or falling in certain regions of the rakes helps them understand aha are there points that you go yep you this might give a little bit more downforce but we start getting into this range and boy we're actually losing things of value in other places we're detaching air in places that we don't want it to detach etc etc so uh, just to close on this and i wanted to use it as the open for this week's show It's really cool to see it, really cool to just acknowledge that, hey, Aero McLaren SP jumped right up and got in the grill of IndyCar's long-established Big Three last year. Andretti Autosport, Chip Ganassi Racing, Team Penske. The three of them trade championships year after year after year. They've been the Big Three for a really long time. It was awesome to see Aaron McLaren SP jump up and say, hey, 
Uh, rookie guy, Pato Ward, P4, <laughs> bring it in his first year with the team as well. I know for a fact that they had planned on doing a lot more integration with the McLaren Formula One side from an engineering and testing standpoint. COVID kicked a lot of that in the behind. Didn't happen as planned. So I would say what we witnessed, for those who are curious about the F1-style aero rakes appearing on Montoya's car uh, at Laguna Seca, this, I would say, is probably one of those items that they'd really hope to be doing last year this time, but were unable to due to the arrival of COVID-19. So does this mean they're going to win the championship? No, it does not. But I would say that this is only going to help them in their march forward to try and either make it the big four or knock someone out of the big three and take their place. They are not, not coming into 2021 with humility. They are a humble team, but I'm saying their ambitions are not humble. And the minute that I saw that, uh, the minute that I saw Montoya's car rolled out, I was like, oh, so that's where we're going. Okay, love it. Just love it. Last little thing here to mention before we move on to the next series of questions. So what does this mean for the rest of the teams? I would say the rest of the teams are probably saying, okay, as well, this is where we're taking it. Well, you can't exactly go to f1aerorake.com and order your assembly and all the mounting struts and all the every, you know, uh, this is not exactly a Lego set you can buy on Amazon. So, uh, but I will tell you, for the teams that have their own machining capabilities and electronics capabilities, and you know, for those who have the infrastructure, uh, you can guarantee that our friends at Team Penske and the rest of the big three will be matching this. I don't know how soon. But I can tell you that before the end of the year, I will be very surprised if we do not see at a private test wherever, whether it's in-season or post-season, more teams with more goodies popping up on their cars. Because even though there's a new engine formula coming up here shortly and there's probably going to be some aero changes with it as well, this is a seasonal fight. Everyone resets, comes back do it over again, who's made the biggest gains, who's gotten better during the offseason. Air McLaren SP just said, we're going places with our testing plans. Nobody happens to be. So, of course, everyone's going to try and scramble to catch up. All right, where do we go next? Ryan Terpstra, uh, one of our, our great, great friends of the show, also one of the members of the silly silly you mentioned silly season but also one of the members of the silly listener group that has formed on their own named the prue day uh, modeled after my favorite wwe tag team the new day which is kind of not so much of a thing anymore it is but it isn't but anyways uh, ryan's one of the the ringleaders there he says what does the silly season have left for us uh, carlin's one or two car entry anything else missing to my knowledge I am unaware, Ryan, of a second Carlin car for the year. 
That's at least based on my last check-in with the team. I'm only aware of their plans to be a single-car team. Max Chilton, Road and Street Courses. I think it would be very odd if anyone... Let's see. If Connor Daly isn't confirmed for one or more ovals, not the Indy 500, he'll be with the home team, Ed Carpenter Racing. But... I think we could very well see Connor back. Uh, I don't know if it would be all of the ovals that aren't Indy, but I think he'll. it'd be silly if he wasn't in the car. Knowing what he did with them, for them last year, uh, yeah. Now, granted, is there someone else that might want to pay for the opportunity? I don't know. I'd hope so, just because that would be good business for them. But Carlin, question mark there, um, we know that based on what some Brazilian reporting that the miniature pervert known as Pietro Fittipaldi has been mentioned as the oval solution in the number 51 Dale Coin Racing with Rick Ware Racing Honda that Romain Groschon uh, is going to handle on road and street courses. I feel like that's something we mentioned on the show not too long ago that uh, a what, maybe just a week or two ago, that it would not indeed be Cody Ware and that it would not be a surprise if Pietro was that solution. So, uh, yeah, it'd be a smart choice uh, for them for sure. Beyond that, and confirming that, Ryan, I cannot really think of much else that isn't already in place. We know that the Andretti Autosport team is not planning on shoehorning someone into Marco Andretti's number 98 entry before or after Indy right now, but could there be a development with a skilled driver and a budget to get that car out a few times this year? I would say uh, if the situation is right, both financially and talent-wise, I'd be very surprised indeed if... Probably a little later in the year, uh, if that car wasn't rolled out uh, more than once. Not saying it couldn't be rolled out at Barber to start the season if they really wanted to. And this little observation here is meaningless. It's just in my own head. But knowing that the team struggled for most of last year, rallied towards the end, really impressed towards the end, but as a whole, did not have a hyper-competitive season. I just get the feeling there's an internal agreement, mindset, something that says, if we really tried, we could probably have eight cars on the grid. But let's not get over-ambitious from an entry side. Let's get over-ambitious on getting back to being a full-time member of the Big Three. They really weren't last year for a lot of it, but did get back into that you know, mythical, theoretical slot uh, towards the end of the year. But I just get a feeling they're placing let's get the ship righted and fast as heck again. And once we get that, then we'll stay. Cool. Uh, let's get the 98. Let's get one of our young indie lights drivers up and kind of groomed for a full season campaign next year who knows if there's someone else uh, floating around they always have folks talking to them they're always talking to people but 
just get the feeling here, Ryan, that Andretti Autosport probably leaning towards quality of product uh, instead of volume of product from the outset, and that's why we won't be seeing the 98 uh, right away. Uh, You know what? I'm going to take a little bit of sip of coffee here because I need it. It's not a beer night. It's a coffee night. Uh, Let's see. What else can I tell you? Um, Let's go to JJ Gertler. He says, if a third engine manufacturer comes along, whoever it is, do you have a sense of the minimum commitment that IndyCar will expect? Could someone come along and just supply one or two teams, or will they have to commit to making a certain number of power plants available? I don't have the documents in front of me, JJ, but I would say from what I recall reading when the last engine formula came into play for 2012, one that we're still using, just trying to remember the, the exact verbiage in it, but it, I, if I seem to recall, it was some, some sort of up to 60% of the field type um requirement in the agreement and at least for what they had then uh lotus was a bit of a surprise third manufacturer that came along they ended up supplying who is it at the time dragon racing dry and reinbold um hvm so i'm thinking they were like four cars five cars maybe i know jean alacy was in a standalone entry for the indy 500 but it was it was enough and it took some of the burden off of chevy and honda and while i don't know if and what requirements might be put in place for a new manufacturer to come in uh, i'm guessing that it would just be a sliding scale of manufacturer numbers. So if it's just two, you would be uh, obligated to supply a maximum of 60%. If it's three of you, as you mentioned here, I'm guessing it could be something like 40%. So, you know, uh, there's <laughs> there's the other thing you got to keep in mind here too, talking about, requirements uh there i don't recall if there is a true true minimum because you can't make anyone run your engine there's no way you can force a team at least according to the rules that someone has to run uh the engine from the third manufacturer if by chance um it's hot garbage as we found with the lotus so deals were done with Lotus, some thinking, hey, this is a very friendly financial thing. We're not going to have to pay much. Uh, there was, hey, we're going to be able to be one of just a handful of teams connected to this manufacturer instead of one of the others that has a bunch of people and you know maybe might struggle to get, uh, I don't want to say favoritism, but a little bit more attention. Um, and then you saw the product once it hit the track and it was just super bad and it's not because my friends at uh, engine developments uh, aka judd don't know how to make quality engines it's because lotus committed 
$37 to the project. Uh, Lotus went for the lowest amount of money they could possibly spend to say that, yes, we are indeed doing the thing we committed to. Um, they just went super cheap from the beginning and did very little to change that approach. Just sharing this, JJ, because as for those of us who were there following back in 2012, you'll see that the Dragon team, which had high designs on being competitive with our friend Sebastian Bourdais and Catherine Legg, uh, they were gutted immediately. Their sponsors were expecting far more, and they wrangled and got a Chevy, ended up dropping down to a single entry that caused a lot of problems because both drivers expected full season rides, but this was the fallout and there was, you know, more fallout to come. Um, just about everybody that had a Lotus, not everybody, but just about everybody that had a Lotus, uh, tried, did their best to get out of the contract. Some just didn't have the money to be able to go pay, uh, for a Chevy or Honda, I'm not totally sure Chevy and Honda were m making their motors available at that point in time, uh, knowing that they were already stretched a little bit thin. But you just have a situation, JJ, where you say, okay, it's easier to say, look, we need you to commit to a maximum number that is serious and significant. It's hard to put a minimum, though, because other than, uh, say, a scenario where a significant manufacturer might want to come in and just have their own factory team. That's where the maximum thing comes in. Hey, great. You just want to run the two of you. Okay. But you have to commit to running a lot more than that. Uh, if that is what ends up uh, being desired just to close on this. And I, I love the topic and thank you for asking JJ. It's just one of those weird little dances where it would be easy to say it's a sliding scale each year engine manufacturers based on how many entries if we have 24 entries and there are three of you well must be split equally eight eight and eight and hopefully my math is good there adding up uh there's no requirement as i mentioned at the outset in teams using a particular manufacturer's motor. And so what do you do there? This is where some of the trickiness and unsavoriness, not a word, uh, came to play in the early stages of this most recent engine formula. And that was, we'll use our pal Mike Shank and the Meyer Shank Racing Team as the perfect example, well-known. Hey, we went and bought a car. Right? I mean, we didn't just say we wanted to enter. We were in and bought a car, and we it arrived, and we are deciding to do this and could not get Chevy or Honda to say yes. Lotus was their only choice. Seeing that Lotus was clearly behind, uh, not only in the build, but, you know, Everything was late, and then once things got on track, they were getting just mollywopped. And so Shank, after begging and pleading and talking to the series and saying, could you intervene and help, and nothing coming of it, said, I would rather put a hold on my IndyCar 
entrant ambitions, sell this chassis, and maybe some point in the future, uh, things will be more right when it comes to I'm a person <laughs> with a racing business. I have a good history. Uh, they just won the 24 hours of Daytona in January, right? They demonstrated here in 2012 they were capable of big things, and yet they were new, and the two most coveted engine suppliers weren't particularly motivated at that point in working with a smallish incoming team with no pedigree. So since there's no one that could force Chevy or Honda to sign an agreement, Lotus was the only option. Mike could see this is going to be a failure. This is going to be an absolute, I might never recover from it. Uh, and not only on the IndyCar side, this could tank my business if, if everything goes really wrong. So I'm just going to back out, sold the car to Eric Bachelart, Conquest Racing, and uh, he waited. So that's just, that's the interesting part. Really, when it comes down to it, JJ, the engine suppliers hold all the power. And yeah, I don't know if and what IndyCar might do to make sure that that no longer remains the case uh, with this next generation engine rules. Let's see. You also ask for some thoughts about Romain Groschon. Um, and if you offered any comparisons between the F1 Halo and the IndyCar Aero screen, didn't ask him about it. I know that at the Barber test, he mentioned that uh, it was pretty much a non-issue. So uh, I figured he covered that off there. Uh, what else? You also mentioned if we're looking for a nickname for him, um, <laughs> go back to the Gallus Racing Days and call him Roman Wheels, which is a sponsor of uh, Alan Sir Jr.'s Eagle Chassis back then. Uh, Raymond Wong, you got Indy Lights uh, observation here saying the in the 80s, for the most part, uh, most drivers that excelled in Indy Lights really uh, went nowhere in IndyCar or struggled to get there. You mentioned Paul Tracy was one of the uh, exceptions to the rule. Uh, you then mentioned Robbie Buell, Eric Bachelard, some folks that got opportunities but uh, were champions uh, but really didn't have big IndyCar careers. Throw a couple other names in here, talking about Steve Robertson, David Emperingham, never got drives. Uh, you're missing a guy by the name of Greg Moore. Um, says it didn't get better until after 95 when teams started signing up drivers from the light series. You mentioned Tony Kanaan, Scott Dixon, Elio Castro Neves. Uh, my question says, who do you feel was lost? What was a lost opportunity that should have gotten a drive in cart or IRL, but never got it? Um, you also say, or was the talent level not as good back then as it is now? Uh, no, it was drivers were just as good back then uh, as they are now, and they were a decade before that and a decade before that. Have a, a podcast series that I'd like to do on this theme, Raymond, so it's great that you ask. And I'm going to reach over here. I've had this sticky taped to my bookshelf for a little while. Um, there's no, I don't know, I just wrote down a, a, it's not even a working title. It's just the, the theme is uh, when it just didn't work out. And this is 
by and large, it's not all 80s, but it is a lot of 80s junior open-wheel drivers, champions who, for reasons I don't fully understand, never got a shot. Or if they did, they didn't do much with it, didn't have a great time, faded, and it's not limited to Indy Lights, it's Formula Atlantic and also Super V. Ken Johnson comes to mind, first of all, someone you may have never heard of. And again, hopefully I can A, find Ken, and B, connect and do something with him. I believe he was the 1988 Super V champion. And Super V back then would have been the equivalent of probably Indy Pro 2000 right now. Um, Indy Lights, Atlantic, and Super V were the three recognized top road to Indy type series, all independent of each other. And Ken is one who I recall doing a a phenomenal job winning the title. And if he, if he did an Indy car race or two, I might be forgetting about it, but just someone where, again, I don't know why, but he did not have an Indy car career after it. And that was, a strange thing because there were tons of guys that came out of super V uh, and did get there. Ken Marillo is another one. Uh, You might recognize him. Those of you who follow sports car racing team owner uh, running GT cars, uh, world challenge, the SRO GT Americas or whatever they call it. Um, Kind of the Michelin pilot challenge level stuff, team owner, driver, I might be getting the years mixed up. Maybe Ken Johnson was like the 87 Super V champ, and Ken was 88. Ken's another one who, you know, I don't know if he's an IndyCar race winner or IndyCar champion potential, but someone who really stood out as a hardcore talent. Scott Atchison, uh, 86 Super V champion, I believe. He did get some chances in IndyCar not with great teams by any means, but uh, did some IMSA GTP a little bit. But, you know, these are three guys, all-American guys by uh, coincidence, who you mentioned Indy Lights. These are three guys that really should have gone places. Dean Hall's another one, Atlantic champion from the Pacific side. Uh, I have on my list here Mark Taylor, right? Uh, Infinity Pro Series champion. Signed with Panther Racing in the IRL. I don't know the story behind it. It was a period where I was kind of between still working and racing weekends and that kind of stuff, but uh, wasn't full-time by any means. I was trying to actually lead a little bit of a normal life. (laughs) That failed. Um, He flamed out completely, and based on the dominant year or dominant championship uh, run of his and the Infinity Pro Series, it made no sense to me there. Uh, AJ Foyt, the, is it fifth? Uh, yeah, someone else who just a bizarre career. I'd love to learn more about. To answer your question on who, uh, the last name that I've listed here is the one that I've always spoken about, always thought of as a, a potential future champion that got away, and that's David Emperingham. Uh, he... I know I've mentioned this on the show once or twice before when this question's come up. He, I would say, potential-wise, at the same kind of Atlantic Indie Lights type level, I mean, Greg Moore was phenomenally talented, part of the uh, player system, obviously, 
um, once he was, you know, graduated from the family team. But uh, I would say there really wasn't much to choose between Empringham and Greg Moore. Now, was there more potential left in Greg to find and develop than Empringham? I'd probably say so. I mean, I think Emp was operating at pretty much peak capability or close to peak, whereas I think Greg, uh, not only being younger, but just there seemed to be more headroom for development and growth and speed and all those things. But just saying, uh, back then, mid-90s, 93, 4, 5, and such, uh, there really wasn't much to choose between Emp and Mr. Moore, where things got a little bit complicated uh, from a player's standpoint. Well, uh, they were looking for one English-Canadian, English-speaking Canadian, Canadian, and one French-Canadian. And Greg was their English-Canadian. And unfortunately, Emp was redundant in that capacity, and his career all but tanked from there if we're talking open wheel. So uh, he'd found work for many years, GT racing, some prototype stuff. But yeah, I always looked at that guy as like, wow, he could have been, he could have been a name that everybody remembered. I don't know if he would have been a champion. I don't know if he would have been an 8,500 winner. Just telling you that same kind of lookout that we saw with Colton Herta, with Pato Award. That's the kind of vibe being given off by Empringham, who is a champion uh, at that level as well. Uh, so, yeah, he's really the one that I always have that, boy, I wonder if. He also says he was going through a pretty rough divorce and just not in a super great place in life as well. So it's funny how sometimes those things can actually derail you from... Uh, yeah, from getting all that you can out of one's career or your own life. Uh, our pal Jerry Sudditz says, this may be a provocative comment or question, but I noticed the negativity from certain segments of fans on Facebook groups, and I wonder if we are our own worst enemy. Says, I see much vitriol from members on these pages who pine for the, quote, good old days and damn the current product and drivers. Is it just me, or is this a surefire way to run off uh, or disillusion newer fans says how do we stop this yeah jerry this <clears throat> it's a topic that comes up on the show more frequently than um any of us would want because we would hope the problem would be gone by now but i think the problem is just human nature i don't think it's like oh this little weird thing popped up and how do we get rid of it like a virus Older people get, the more they, as you use a great word here, pine, pine for things from the era where whatever it was that they love had the biggest impact on them. So that's just a generalism. Oh, music these days is garbage, and boy, you know, remember when there were real singers and real this and real that. I guarantee you. Whatever music today that is annoying someone who is older and is making them, leading them to say today's stuff is garbage. How could you listen to it back in the day? Everything was better. 
let's wind the clock forward 20 to 30 years <laughs> and the people who are super young right now listening to the music that old people hate too many of them will inevitably get older listen to that music when they're 50 years old of whatever's brand new and go oh my god what is this i mean the stuff in my youth was the best and yet again what's best to them is the worst thing in the world to those who are 20 30 years older than them or older it's just cyclical man it could be movies it could be cars it could be sports oh my gosh today's nfl oh my it's it's just too soft and too this and and you go okay got it i understand i think that part's human nature so i don't know if you're going to change human nature but i would maybe think of one or two things if you or others get annoyed by this as i do i used to use a fairly cut and paste response uh, of something along the lines of, yay, you said something negative on the internet, exclamation point. Uh, mocking the person, hopefully embarrassing the person, which I know that's not nice, but really trying to just point out that, hey, you woke up today and you had all kinds of choices. Should I be a person that brings a little bit more light to the world or should I do something that maybe just uh, pisses and moans on things? And I realized some folks having a bad day, they see something they don't like, it feels good to vent, a little bit of pressure go again. I get all these things, but hey, you know, it's also okay to point out, yeah, yay. You've added negativity to the world. Congratulations. We didn't have enough. But hey, look, you solved the shortage. That's one approach. That's the me being a bit dickish approach, but not really giving a bleep approach. Um, Then there's the uh, kill them with kindness, right? Um, There's the thanks appreciate your perspective but whereas the cars of your youth are the ones that you love the most and you dislike the ones today keep in mind today's cars are the cars of my youth so therefore like you they're the ones that i hold most dear maybe that's a common ground that could help us build from here uh just be kind but I, I'm a pretty big believer. I don't do it as often as I should, uh, but I still do it whenever I see there's a need or a desire to. Call it out. Hey, uh, you got a lot of choices on how to act. This ain't it. Uh, you can do better. If you're really, truly angry, pissed off, upset about whatever thing that's not looking the way you like, sounding the way you like, whatever, um, okay. Uh, does complaining about it change any of that? Does it do anything for you? If not, yeah, I think most of us could agree whether it is politics, religion, uh, name all the different things where you go, Oh man, that's ugly. I'm going to avoid that. That's a fight. That's bitterness and division. 
there are so many things in the world that just you go i just want to stay in bed (laughs) i want to deal with it people are crazy and just screaming and yelling about everything how about we not bring that into the thing we're all supposed to love i think it's okay to do that jerry i really do and i don't think it's well i don't think it's being preachy i just think it's saying hi um let's get into a great debate right hey uh scott dixon versus aj foyt uh who's better and why right whether it's statistics what's the thing one what does aj foyt have that scott dixon is missing what does scott dixon have that aj foyt never had you know hey that's the fun stuff right it's the the boston red Sox fan uh getting into it with the new york yankees fan right and uh you know few adult words might get used but look let's have passionate debate why is mine better yours cool let's do that just tearing stuff down i don't know uh i think it's okay jerry Uh, i think the world is trending in a yeah there's a lot of heavy stuff going on these days like really heavy and let's maybe try and hold one another a little more accountable to do things that make people happier than sadder uh i don't know i don't know if you agree but that's what comes to mind here um i mean i love (laughs) anytime i just want to see the state of ugliness i know that all i need to do is look at the article comments for things that i write about whether it is usually female racers women racers uh whether it is gender uh or race in particular um i mean it's just it's a fascinating window into how different people react to things all the baggage they bring to topics that they vomit onto the subject i read i think it was over the weekend uh in the jimmy mcmillan story that we did that i am both a race baiter which is pretty phenomenal and anti-white so and there was all you know a variety of supporting documentation of these things and i think it's the same person who said more or less it's you know some screen hiding behind a screen name routine but i think it's the same person who wrote more or less the same thing on a facebook post and whatever whatever and that would have been months ago and so just on the topic of you got choices on on what you contribute to the world each day and if we're in a space we're talking about a sport we all supposedly love um cool i mean that's some baggage being carried from post to post over months to try and advance the same narrative um cool i guess if that's the thing that makes a person happy, uh, maybe that is the thing, Jerry, that makes a person happy. To be really negative, I can just tell you that if being really negative is a thing that makes someone happy, little bit of personal insight here, I don't have those people in my world. I have intentionally either cut them out or just avoided them and that's not saying surround myself by yes men and yes women 
Not at all. But there's a big difference between saying, oh, you're a dark cloud and you always want to be a dark cloud and you always want to cast shadows on things. At least for how I live my life, that's not a healthy healthy environment to be around. I've been around that. Um, not something that reconciles. So maybe those some of those folks like that uh, who just want to dig in and be that dark cloud, um, maybe they're not going to change or respond to the, hey, uh, how about we go in a different direction? But maybe if you try enough, some others will. Where else are we going to go here? Where else are we going to go on the book face before we switch over to Twitters? Sure. Uh, Ross Porter says, through the podcast, I've found I have a hard time rooting against any one driver because they all seem so likable. The closest thing I have resembling someone to root against is Aaron McLaren SP due to their treatment of Hinch and Oliver Askew and uh, thin skin attitude, but even then I really don't mind Felix Pato or JPM. Could the series benefit from more of a brash personality that doesn't necessarily conform to political correctness and other norms in the paddock? A villain, if you will. I think benefit from a brash, a holish personality could... Uh, the non-political correctness side, that I think would be problematic because there's just zero tolerance in our North American world right now for anybody that says anything uh, that isn't politically correct, anyone that has some sort of political correctness foul, vilified, canceled, you name it, um, there are those who do some bad things who, you know, deserve getting whatever reaction and heat for it. But just saying, I don't know if I'd venture into the PC side because that's a pretty vicious place to live if you make an error there. Uh, so there's that. But I think of a Kyle Bush in NASCAR, and I don't know him, never met him, met his brother, but don't know uh, Kyle. He definitely fits that bill of a DGAF all-star. Doesn't give a bleep. Um, is very much his own man. Says whatever is on his mind. Doesn't care that you know he the folks in the NASCAR tower have a bat phone uh, connected wherever he goes, and they're probably like just ringing that thing nonstop. Why did you say this? Why did you say that? He just doesn't care and so that renegade personality which i think fits nascar maybe a little bit better than indycar uh it seems to play uh there may be lacking uh, a couple of kyle bushes a few more of them over there but yeah i got to admit uh indycar's version of a kyle bush i think would draw some real attention I'm struggling, though, to think of the young driver because you're not going to get an old driver to just magically you know, put on an, some sort of fake personality. I'm trying to think of the young driver that has that DGAF approach. I can't think of any. So I would 
say without a doubt, Ross, that if and when IndyCar has a driver like that, and they will, uh, I mean, it's inevitable, um, it'll be interesting to see how it's received. Last little observation, I mean, I recall times where there were certainly multiple, not just in IndyCar, but in a lot of sports. Boy, there are a lot of big personalities uh, didn't care about anything, and you know they were loved for being so brash. Be interesting to see. That seems to be dialed down a little bit year after year in major sports. Not as many that I can think of right now that fit that bill in major sports. Wonder if that acceptance of that personality type is going to go away just because it's not something that we're subjected to uh, as often as we once were. You know, the Muhammad Ali's, for those of you who either uh, watched him or or know of him and his story, I don't know how well Muhammad Ali would be received today uh, in the way that he was that made him uh, the greatest. Uh, That kind of boastful, just, you know, chest-pounding. He went out and proved it more often than not, but... Um, that's not just not something we see a lot of, uh, culturally right now. So if we, if, and when we do get that person, I wonder how it will be received. Uh, let's see. Brian Burrell. Uh, you got a question here. I think someone else asked about this too. And I think they sent it in more than once. And I apologize that I think I'm reading your question instead of theirs. So, the person who sent it in, uh, oh, James Lau. I'm just finding it here. This is why I need to work from uh, a Word document, y'all. I apologize for failing on that end. James, you say second time posting this with yesterday's private test. And he says, good to see you there. And the previous Ganassi only test, I assume all costs come out of the uh, team or sponsor's pockets. And what about engineers from Honda and Chevy? I assume they have to be there too. And on whose dime? Uh, let me go back up to Brian's here said curious about track rentals for test um, heard that uh, one team essentially rents the track and the other teams are allowed to join. If that's the case, how much advance notice do you have to give? Uh, is this a cat and mouse kind of deal on splitting the cost? What are the costs? Do some tracks cost more or offer discounts? Um, you know, say thanks for keeping everyone informed. Well, that's very kind of you, man. Um, a lot of questions in there just trying to answer the things between the two of you here the way things normally work for a private test is exactly the case of a team will rent or book the track i should say so what you will hear is this is so-and-so's day now there could be multiple teams there but what that means is and Air McLaren, this is Air McLaren SP's day. And they're going out with three cars and a big test plan. And as I mentioned, they got Montoya in the super test mobile. And we don't care about Laguna Seca. We, we're concerned about other things. And that's the big thing. And to rent the track, I don't know what the track rental cost is for the day. It d- totally depends on where you go, what it is. You know, could be 10 grand, could be 15, could be a lot more. All depends, size of the track, the amount of staff that need to come in and turn on the proverbial lights, turn everything on. You need corner workers, safety workers. 
you need ambulances. You could, again, depending on where you go, um, there could be very different things. The track says, Hey, you got to pay for all these things. Plus some other things that are our safety standards, right? Helicopter on site, emergency helicopter on site, or again, just there's some variances, but of course there's also very different costs. So hard to say exactly how much a test day costs anywhere, but we'll mention that way things normally work. You'll have a team that books a test. Uh, you will then either say, Hey, uh, we're going out to here group email to team managers. Hey, we're going here on this date. And if you would like to go, let me know. Uh, we'd love to share the costs. In some cases, teams have no real interest in sharing the track for those who can afford it. They pay for the whole thing. They're on their own, learn what they want to learn, end of deal. Um, But more often than not, it's really rare. Well, more often than not, the single team going to a single track (laughs) for a single day, uh, not a ton of that anymore. It's usually a shared deal. And so in that situation, you have whatever the price is for the day. I'm really unaware uh, of most tracks changing the rental price based on the amount of teams. So more often than not, it's that, let's just say Laguna Seca on Monday was twenty grand. Split that between the four teams, there you go. And again, I'm not saying that's the number, just saying divide by the number of teams Uh, And then off you go. Now, if you want to get into, okay, well, what if there's a four-car team there and then there's a one-car team? Does that mean the one-car team pays for half of the day while they're only one-fifth of the cars on track? Again, this is a, a negotiation between teams on kind of sort of working together. Last little note on that part you have to realize that if there's a willingness to share the day, being harsh with other teams, either on the price or whatever, you know, there's going to come a time where another team is going to have the test in their name to have booked the test. It will be their day and you may want to go. So being too harsh on costs, too harsh on anything you tend to get a pretty cool dealing with one another routine uh because it's going to come around and bite you if you don't uh but there are some reputations of course of oh yeah boy yeah i don't know if i want to go to that test date because team x has that test and yeah uh they really love to pass on costs or they you know there's a little reputation. Not everybody acts in the best interest of one another. Hope some of you read that test story from Monday as well, which is pretty fun. Uh, the major issue experienced was barrels of fuel did not arrive. We're not there for teams to use and get going on their own Monday morning. Uh, I know there's a question in here somewhere of like, what, how does this happen? Uh, it happens. Okay. <laughs> uh, there was an order placed did not arrive in time. Can't, don't know whether it was a logistics thing, a timing of the order. Again, I can't tell you why, but I can tell you that 
it was really cool to see the four teams there band together and say, all right, well, we all travel with a very limited number of fuel uh, to use, uh, usually kept in five-gallon jugs or, you know, they might have a 55-gallon barrel, but uh, I don't know how many teams drive around with numerous full 55-gallon barrels. What they ended up doing, and this is just all the team managers getting together quickly, said, hey, uh, I know some of you don't have much. Some of us, some have more than others. In the interest of everyone getting out and using the test day, let's do an inventory of how much fuel we have, put those numbers together, and then split and then share. So we will just move <laughs> move fuel around from team to team so that everybody has an equal amount and i think the number that i heard was 38 laps basically teams had 38 laps of testing that they could do in the morning uh, and there was a belief that the fuel would be there around lunch a little bit before lunch that all ended up being true and so teams did get a chance to go out and test but there was also a little bit of rationing in some cases what if it doesn't show up Um, we don't want to burn everything in the morning and then have nothing for the afternoon, but it all worked out and it was all pretty cool to see, uh, teams who plan on beating the heck out of each other when we go racing. Um, that's pretty amazing to think that they would do, uh, that kind of sharing. So yeah, I love seeing that. I just love, love seeing that. Let's go to Anthony Beck says MP. I've heard rumors that teams say one of the biggest things holding them back from adding additional cars is having a lack of qualified pit crew and engineers readily available. So should the series think about adding pit stops and more engineering options to our feeder series? It says if the road to Indy crews had to do pit stops and they were growing and progressing along the ladder, it seems like it'd be a great way to prep new talent. That could get called up at any moment to the big leagues. I suppose the issue would be the added cost uh, to already strapped teams. But uh, just like investing in a driver of the future, it would give them a way to build a team of the future. And you mentioned most recently Ray Hall-Letterman-Lanigan mentioned this about uh, qualified personnel being something holding them back. Well, my immediate reaction to this, Anthony, is, boy, what a great reason to then put together a RLL Indy Lights team, wouldn't you say? Um, It is true. There are not enough available qualified people to staff uh, as many Indy cars as maybe some teams would hope to run. The same time, As we see with Andretti Autosport, for example, when they run an extra car at the Indy 500 or sometimes, you know, wherever else where they already have all their full-time IndyCar crews dedicated to their full-time cars, uh, they'll reach down to their Indy Lights team. And some of those crew members are IndyCar veterans who enjoying life and lights. Some really don't have IndyCar experience, but are capable and qualified it's a great question i would just say if teams are if teams whatever number are saying hey we're struggling to find skilled quality people to fill roles which is a thing 
It's not a made-up thing. Uh, NASCAR it has been a giant vacuum of talent and interested people wanting to have careers in motor racing. It's been that way for more than a decade. Uh, IMSA has also become a real talent drain on IndyCar. Uh, obviously, NASCAR wins the, oh man, that is a grueling schedule uh, fight with 8 million races per year. So uh, it's hard to say IndyCar 17 are just brutal by comparison. Regardless, would say that it's still a pretty packed and busy lifestyle. And I know that I've continued to hear from more and more friends working in IndyCar, whether it's mechanics, engineers, truck drivers, that, yeah, I, th- I think IMSA. I think IMSA might be it for me. It's 11 races a year, so that's a good thing. And there's testing, but not a crazy amount of it. And the off-seasons aren't too, too long. So I stay busy, stay employed during the off-season, but the pacing is something that works most for me. So NASCAR, bit of a place, Anthony, where it's a generalism, but younger-ish talent or potential talent, you tend to see a lot more young folks wanting to go to that, whatever it might be, an ARCA or a trucks or something their version of kind of the development level and work their way up. Um, There's a lot more talent heading stock car directions than IndyCar. It's been that way for a while. Uh, For those who've been in IndyCar for a while and are saying, you know, this is what I do and I, you know, this is what I do and this is how I pay for my family. So I can't exactly turn my back on racing, but speaking of backs, it's aching and so are my knees and my elbows and my wrists and my everything. Maybe that grueling Rolex 24 Daytona in late January followed by six weeks off, uh, until we go to Sebring somewhere in the middle of March and then maybe long beach in the middle of April. And then something, uh, early to middle, March, uh, May, I should say. And then, yeah, one or two things will pick up a little bit over summer, but then slow down a little bit, uh, towards the end of the year, finish up early-ish October. I like the pacing of that a lot more and all the things that are aching are not going to ache. Uh, and there's a lot of sports car teams, a lot of sports car teams. There's always work to be had there. Those are the things, Anthony, that conspire a bit against there being a well-populated stock of talent uh, available to IndyCar teams. So back to your point, eh, uh, the adding pit stops to Road to Indy events, even if it's just the top in Indy Lights, just to prepare crew for IndyCar, eh, uh, how's this? A person doing an excellent pit stop on a HMG GRG Indy Lights car. Great. You've got experience doing it. Fantastic. The minute they get to IndyCar working for whatever team, pretty much guarantee you that team is going to tell them, forget everything you do, forget everything you know, 
We're going to start from scratch. You're going to do things our way. And so obviously numerous differences with an Indy car compared to an Indy lights car. But I think in very rare cases, an Indy car team would go, well, fantastic. We don't have to show you anything. It'd be the exact opposite. So that's why I'm not too concerned about just that level uh, of training. It's to me more a case of if you're wanting to have next generation engineering talent, mechanicing talent, managerial talent, all the things where if you want to run that extra car, boy, uh, give me the argument then against starting your own Indy Lights team or Indy Pro 2000 and Indy Lights team. Uh, I hear all kinds of, I'll call them reasons, but really excuses from IndyCar team owners who aren't there. And they, but yet again, this item you mentioned, Anthony, which is why I'm sticking with it for an extra moment. It's a little precious, right? We can't find the people we need. Do the thing where you can make the people that you need. Well, you know, I don't know if we need to uh, be in that series for all these other reasons. Okay, but you tell me that you could expand if you had the people, but you won't. Anyways, um, that's that, my man. Uh, there's a maybe a bit of a knowledge gap here uh, as well that could be addressed. There are some very cool schools in Indiana and elsewhere that do indeed train folks for careers in motorsports. But the popularity of NASCAR, the, the air quote sexiness of it, it's just something that you tell someone you work in racing, what's the first thing they say to you? Oh, NASCAR, right? IndyCar is not even on their register. Some changes will hopefully happen where IndyCar becomes a little sexier, a little bit better known, and maybe those folks who once streamed into Open Wheel to want to be a part of it and want to join and be the uh, badass people we see on pit lane uh, and on those timing stands, maybe it'll come back our way a little bit. Uh, let's see. Where else can I go here? Steve Sell says, MP, it seems aeroscreen improvement talk has gone quiet. Can you provide any updates? Uh, and also mention thanks. Uh, best of my wife. Thank you, my man. I haven't transcribed it. I haven't even listened back to it, but I did catch up with our man Jay Fry, IndyCar president, on, I think, Thursday? Last Thursday? It'd be better than next Thursday because then I'd have a time machine and I shouldn't be revealing that. Uh, it is a question that I asked. He mentioned something along the lines of filtering. I don't know if there's a lot more that's happening, but yes, something to or efforts in place to reduce dirt and grit and gunk and, and whatnot getting into the driver's helmet. That is certainly, I think, the number one item that he mentioned. I'll have to listen back and see if there was any more. Um, as I mentioned on the show, and I try and mention each week, I get, we get, y'all send in for this little family gathering, uh, on average, 50 plus questions a week. Um, I know that we're, what, I think 33 alone this week on Facebook, and I didn't send out the normal call on Monday because I was at the track, did that um, very late uh, this morning, Tuesday. So I apologize for that. Um, say as often as I remember, hey, if you send in a question and you really want me to answer it, send it back in. Not just I sent in a question and you didn't answer it, so therefore I'm sending it back in. The show, we, these shows would be nine hours long. If there's something you're like, hey, I really want an answer to that, please send it back in. Um, 
also keep in mind that normally uh, we do our best to pick and choose the questions that we think everyone will enjoy. There's some things that are very obscure that don't get chosen, and it's not because we don't love you. It's just we got a limited amount of time, and we do have to pick and choose. And so I'm going to take this one because you've mentioned that you're submitting it again, Jonathan Green. Uh, normally this wouldn't make the show because I don't think enough, you know, I'm answering this for you. I don't think anyone else <laughs> is curious about the young man, but I'll answer it because today's a little bit of a free format thing. But again, if you send it in, I don't get to it. You really want it, send it back in. But just keep in mind, still going to look at it and go, does this fit the show and will everyone care? Um, you ask, what happened to Zachary Clayman DeMello? He seemed quick, just needed more experience. Uh, he ran out of funding. Um, there was sponsorship behind him, and that sponsorship stopped being behind him. Would say that he was fast. I don't know if he was, and he's going to win an IndyCar race in his career fast, but he did have potential. Uh, I liked the kid. He had a little bit of attitude to him for sure, just more in person and not in a bad way. Just, you know, he had high belief in himself, had some swagger and yeah. Um, but I would put him more in the, would love to see him in an Indy car because it would add to the field and make it a little deeper and bring finances to a team. I don't know if I ever looked at uh, our Canadian friend here, though, Jonathan, as someone who was destined for more than uh, occasional flirtations in the top 10, maybe top 8. Um, I never got the feeling he was playing with that kind of talent or had put in enough work to develop. Uh, that degree of talent. So I haven't heard anything about him since. Like the kid, uh, just haven't had a reason to really follow up or see what he's doing in life because, uh, I don't know, i got a life of my own. I try and uh, look after those who are here and playing the game. All right, uh, where are we going to go next? Cody Oakwood, say, I believe you mentioned on a previous episode that you and your wife partake in the watching of The Mandalorian. Therefore, who is the uh, Mando-Baby-Yoda duo of the IndyCar world? Did Robin Miller and yourself have a Mando-slash-Baby-Yoda relationship in your early journalism days? Now, that is funny, Cody. Um, he is kind of old and furry, but not green. Um, and I certainly wouldn't fit in any kind of Mandalorian suit uh, uh there's no beskar that they can wrap there's not enough beskar to make a uh a suit for me uh boy that's funny who's the mando baby yoda i mean would it be our man new 40 the world's newest 42 year old sebastian Bourdais? happy birthday my french fry uh and his young teammate dalton kellett could you see Dalton with uh, those ears? Maybe. I mean, granted, uh, former IndyCar driver Zach Veach was definitely, I mean, someone actually went to the effort to make him uh, into a baby yoda. I wish I had that image available right now to post, and I would. But 
is there anybody else that really fits? I'll just go with them, right? I think, is it the biggest age difference between teammates on a team? Maybe. Um, yeah, and I hope he hears this because it'll piss him off. If I get a call tomorrow, oh, I know he will have listened, but he won't. He has better things to do than listen to my dumbass rant here. Uh, as for Robin and I and him being, yeah, uh, me being the baby Yoda to him, not really. I would say, though, that it felt like it at times. I mean, I certainly observed him with great intent in terms of Robin being the let me tell you how to do things, son, type relationship or scenario. Not at all. Uh, On the rarest of occasions has Robin done that, and that's because that's not his personality type. Uh, he's not a let me say things or position myself as someone who is, you know, uh, an educator or whatever. He's more of a figure it out yourself type. Uh, but I will say that I just observed his working style, which is a fairly crazy thing as well, as many who know him can attest. But uh, not so much the he is sitting down to type, let me watch how he types and how he does it. Not that at all. It's more of the, uh, hey, we're on pit lane together or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, we were the two guys from Speed for many, many years, and then we've been the two guys from Racer for many, many years. And so we're often doing things together collaboratively, whatever. And so it's just watching him interact with people, how he asked questions, how he broached subjects that were tough, uh, Things where I knew that he knew something and was probing the person he was talking to to see if they would spring it on their own or whether they would tell him the truth or not. Um, you know, uh, one of the great Robin Miller lines, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, hey, uh, let's go down to so and so's uh, garage and see if so and so will lie to us. And I've used that many, many times since because it's just such a, it's an honest thing, <laughs> right? You know that m- more often than you would like, uh, whether it's a driver, whether it's a team owner, whatever it is, um, they're not going to give you an honest answer. You'd wish they would just say, hey, I'm just not, hey, I'll, I'll decline that. Hey, nah, I'd really rather not talk about that. They'll just give you total BS. Um, and yeah, Hey, it's part of the game, but I do love that approach of, look, I know (laughs) you're an inherent liar and I expect you to do everything you can to try and derail my efforts. That's the mindset going in. And so let me at least go and have fun with this. Like watching Robin take that approach. I was like, that's, that's a pretty good one. Uh, you want to believe everyone's going to put their hand on the Bible um, uh, and swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. Ah, People tell uh, their own version of the truth more often than not. So uh, observe that for sure. Um, Also just interesting to look at Robin's approach to what he does, right? told this a thousand times to him yelling at me to uh, finish up my effing story that I was 
you know, slaving over thinking, you know, treating everything that like, it's just hyper important, not what I'm doing or that I'm doing it is important, but just taking the work so seriously that, Oh my, everything has to be at this, you know, urgent level of, of, uh, production and thought and care and him just, you know, saying, you know, paraphrasing again, I won't use all the words, but Hey, we're not going to win Pulitzer prizes for this stuff, man. Just finish the story so we can go to dinner. It's a, among the best advice I've ever received. So, uh, yeah, I mean, since then, um, I don't know how much I, I've been in that baby Yoda scenario. He calls me kid every time we speak I and mean, he's 20 years older than I am. Uh, but you know, deservedly, I guess calls me kid, but, uh, I appreciate working with Robin he doesn't like to hear it, doesn't want to know it, tells me to go F myself anytime I mention anything nice or say something appreciative. Uh, but just observing, I learned a lot. And why? I guess I maybe should have mentioned this up front. I, I spent a lot of time after I left working in IndyCar uh, at the end of the 2001 season and then went to college, went to university, uh, didn't finish uh, but at least got through three years and one quarter, I think. So I think I have three quarters left to finish. Um, but English was something that I fo- focused on a lot as I almost struggled as I did struggle to say the word English, which is funny. Uh, but there was no journalism one one school that I went to. It was frankly, like just about everything else I've done and earned a dollar doing something that I learned, picked up uh, on my own to begin, and then had a lot of people fill in big, massive holes, uh, all experiential. And so this journalism thing, I don't know how to be a journalist or a reporter. I remember going to the track for the first time with uh, Speed.com, Speed Digital Boss, I think was his title, Joe Tripp. I think it was Petit Le Mans. Uh, America Le Mans series like 2006, I think. And we had two seats in the media center. I remember sitting down and knowing who a lot of the people in there were, having read a lot of their work, seen their photos and so on. Um, known a couple of the PR reps from things I would have done in IndyCar, you know, working at a team where a person, that person was our PR rep. Now they're working for whatever sports car team or manufacturer. I just remember sitting in there with Joe and being very appreciative that he was wanting me to be a part of the team and we were still trying to figure out what I would do. Eventually he quote hired me and paid me some money starting a little bit later in 2007. But at least at that time, all free and unpaid and paying my own travel as well. I remember walking into the media center with him uh, finding the two seats that were reserved for us sitting down and not knowing what to do, right? I mean, I knew how to, I'd interviewed people and I'd written some stories again, that stuff. Yes. But the actual, we've just sat down at whatever time, seven thirty in the morning, the day is about to start. What is the actual <laughs> job list? The production list of my day. What do I do? What do you do? Uh, the first session is starting a little bit. What do you, I don't know. 
do you go watch it somewhere and take notes and come back and tell people, Hey, I saw a race car go around a corner. It was cool. Or do you go down to pit lane and talk to some of the team managers, engineers, mechanics, whatever that, you know, and learn some stuff. I don't know. Maybe do you go shoot some photos? Maybe you put a photo gallery together. Yeah. I don't know. You could probably do that too. No idea. And so it was just a lot of watching and observing and, patterning what i saw other folks do and having to learn on the job and thankfully uh, be given a lot of leeway to make a lot of mistakes uh but yeah so robin once i started doing some indycar stuff for speed um a year or two later i don't remember exactly when but yeah robin obviously number one indycar reporter period still the number one reporter um I looked at him in a bit of awe and uh, just tried to observe and expedite my learning process. Uh, Where are we going here? Uh, We're going to Austin Sutton. Hey, Austin. He says, uh, second time asking, but I'm kind of understanding. You're a busy guy. Eh, I'm also an idiot, Austin. So uh, how much does driver height and weight impact set up? Do uh, say uh, Graham Rahal and Takuma Sato have different dampers or suspension settings because of their size difference uh would ray hall have better info sharing with someone like say ryan hunter ray as his teammate not necessarily austin uh, they would likely have different setups mild difference in setups not like night and day difference but they would at minimum have mild differences just because most drivers have differences things they like that are a little bit different than others so dampers uh, could very well be different uh from car to car the biggest physical difference is the thing that has the biggest physical impact on setup and handling and that is just graham's height so they do their best to get him as low as possible in the car to lower his center of gravity but if you think of Graham from the waist up. Don't think of Graham from the waist down, please. If you think of Graham from the waist up, Takuma from the waist up, there's a lot more human (laughs) with Graham than Takuma. He's taller. He is wider. There is more muscle mass. I'm assuming bone density and who knows. But there is just more weight and volume from the waist up on Graham than Takuma that would be sitting up higher in the car. So any and all the things you might have heard over the last year, Austin, about the addition of the aero screen to the cars and the negative handling effects that it has brought. Hey, that's a 60-pound thing bolted on top of the car. And so totally get the safety aspect. Not We're not criticizing that. But dynamically, performance-wise, it's 60 pounds up high. And when I brake... Yeah, there's more weight and rotation coming down on the front of the car. If I'm turning, that's more weight up high, causing it to roll over and be a little bit more roly-poly. And it's kind of the tail wagging the dog with this thing heavy and up high, exaggerating, obviously. It's not truly throwing the car around the track. But compared to uh, before it was bolted on, it's definitely rolling and moving a bit more and not 
making the drivers as crisply happy as they were before it arrived. Apply that same thing to a weight and size of a Graham Rahal sticking up higher in the car than Takuma Sato. And so these are things that the team has to take account of in their setup approach. I can just mention quickly here to close this off that I worked with a driver who was six foot six guy by the name of Lee Lucas champion uh, driver here in the Bay area. Um, also a champion in the SCCA pro racing series, former series, uh, the sports 2000 series and Lee, <laughs> we certainly had to make setup accommodations for him because, uh, he, there was so the roll hoop had to be extended high and very different for him just to make sure his head, uh, didn't stick above it. And so there was a lot of Lee vertical in the car that was not good for vehicular dynamics, rolling around and rolly and poly back and forward and side to side. And so that's where you start manipulating suspension geometry. Uh, that is where you take your damping and anti-roll bar settings and a whole bunch of good stuff. You take those things into account for someone that has more height, weight, and mass swinging the car around a bit like that uh, arrow screen we talk about. Thanks for sending that in, by the way. I really appreciate that, Austin. So we try and do these shows, and by we, I guess I mean me, try and do these shows in about an hour and a half. I'm going to go a little bit longer here because I want to get through a few more questions. And like I said, this may be a little bit of a different episode than normal. So let me rattle through and get through as many as I quickly can here before we say goodbye. Uh, Andy Bauer, fourth submission. Holy cow. I am sorry, man. Um, What does the uh, car count for Indy Lights look like? Uh, also says continue prayers for your rock star wife. I agree, she is a rock star, Andy. Uh, that's my girl. Twelve, I think, is what I'm expecting. Um, what I think I've heard, thirteen is a possibility. So, yeah, I think an even dozen or so uh, would be about right. I'm hoping to be wrong at the and that there's more. Mention it was great yesterday to see uh, three of the four. Andretti Autosport Indy Lights drivers uh, did not get a chance to see Daniel Frost, but they were loading in uh, testing today. Uh, They were loading in yesterday, got to see uh, Robert McGinnis. I think as we figured out how to pronounce his name last time he was on the show, Robert McGinnis uh, saw him first. Great to see him. Truly love that kid and not only hope that his year goes super well in lights but also his branching out into sports cars with the uh, Vassar Sullivan team in IMSA then got to see the uh, young hot rod that is Devlin DeFrancesco again love that kid uh, know he's going to be an IndyCar here before too long and then got to see that tall drink of Florida water known as Kyle Kirkwood, who was wearing his fire suit. I gave him a little bit of ribbing because I think they ordered it an extra medium because that thing was tight. So 
Uh, I wasn't sure if he was trying to show off or he was just really hitting the gym hard and he's super swole. He's like, no, it's just tight. But I saw him as well. Just great to catch up with those three. And I would say at least two of them should be an IndyCar next year, if not next year, the following. Um, Yeah, uh, there's some real talent stacked, as usual, in the Andretti uh, Indy Lights program. But I cannot wait, Andy for the Indy Light season to get rolling because across multiple teams, there are multiple badasses. I would say one of the deeper, deeper seasons I can think of in a little while. So, yeah, also got to see the new Halo uh, installed, and uh, it looks just like it looks on most other junior formula cars. Uh, so, Happy to see all that uh, is working out well, quite uh, quite well. Uh, let's see, Vincent Bottomley. Hey, Vincent. says, first up, hope you and your wife are doing well. Her baddest attitude and her fight against cancer is truly inspiring. I agree. I often tell her I am married to inspiration, like the living embodiment. So uh, how fortunate am I? I don't believe I've seen IndyCar teams run the pedo tube arrays before talking about the, uh, the rake. Uh, you asked, do other teams use those? Uh, if not, do you think they will? Um, and you also asked, do they really deliver high quality, useful data? Yeah, they absolutely do. Um, I wanted to take this one just a Vincent. It's great. Thank you for sending in a question. If you've, it feels like you've sent some in before, uh, maybe been a while, but if not, if this is your first time, thank you, brother. Wanted to catch this one because while we covered off the big rakes uh, towards the end of the day, I'm for all I know, it was on there from the start of the afternoon session. I don't think it was, but who knows? Uh, they stuck a true giant single pitot tube atop the car, atop the roll hoop, so trying to measure air speed up top uh, in very, very clear air as well on Montoya's car. So, yeah. Uh, they were capturing all kinds of quality data, doing correlation as well of uh, things that they have learned, think they've learned, want to learn, want to make sure that those settings are indeed matching real world by gathering some important data. Uh, Ed Joris, you sent in a note here. Uh, I think it was last week we spoke about, hey, IndyCar, how can we get to some form of synthetic zero carbon emitting fuel or nearly zero uh you pulled up the somewhat recent press release about porsche and siemens energy partnering to do that so yeah had read about that uh know that that's in place but yeah just more of a question of know that this is not the a brand new thing that no one is trying to do more a question of hey indycar is this something you you know i know you wanted to do this that's the reason why the hybrid power plant stuff they were late to it they didn't necessarily want to go down that route because they thought well hey what if we can develop a zero carbon monoxide emitting zero bad greenhouse gases fuel and then there's no real reason to have to go electrified if we're no longer putting bad things into the atmosphere and that didn't happen and so then uh, they said well then I guess we're going to need to do something. Now we have this hybrid formula. Uh, I did ask Jay in the conversation we had a couple days ago, so is this thing still on the table? What do you think? 
I, I got a kind of sort of yes for the future, maybe. But uh, again, I'm going to have to listen back. I just don't recall the answer being like 100% yes. Um, interested, yes. I don't think the interest has ever gone away. I just don't know if there's an actual, oh, and we're talking to our current fuel partner or there could be an, a new partner to come in and join in uh, and work with Speedway. Again, I don't know these things, but I'm hoping to learn something a little bit more definitive because I think this could actually be a huge thing uh, if, if IndyCar could do it. Uh, let's see. Stephen kills Donk. All right. How you doing, Stephen? Uh, this is one. Let's see. Hey, Marshall, best wishes to you and your wife. Uh, going through some old races, I watched the 1998 Fall Texas IRL race won by John Paul Jr. Early in the race, your car with Greg Ray sustained damage in avoiding a crash and a replacement hashtag front nose was borrowed from Sam Schmidt's team. Left me wondering, uh, how did your team or how would a team today decide on a wing angle setting when provided, uh, say, a foreign nose cone and a limited amount of time to work with while hoping to avoid drastically altering the center of pressure? Yeah, it's a great question, Stephen. So on rare occasion, you'll see a team run out of spare hashtag front noses uh, and wing assemblies and then seek desperate measures to remain in the game. What you'd want to do in that scenario, knowing that if you're having to come to pit lane for something like this, you're probably uh, have or will lose a lap. Know that you might not be uh, in a race winning position, at least maybe you'd have to get some laps back uh, under caution. I mean, really uh, a digital inclinometer is what would be used. I mean, if you have to go run and borrow something, as you mentioned here, um, uh, from another team or yeah, it'd be from another team. If they're willing to lend it to you, great. You'd ask today. You will quite often have the angle settings written on a piece of tape on them. Um, something that yes, other teams could look at and learn from knowing that these things change quickly in an oval race, adding, uh, wing or taking wing away up front. But more often than not today, that information would be included with the wing just on a piece of tape on it. Uh, and if not, yeah, you could try and do the eyeball test, but every team has tools uh, to measure front wing angles uh, with their speedway trim. I mean, with every wing angle for every package on every type of track as well but in this instance uh it will be a machined device device jesus a machined piece of metal usually aluminum uh that has a recess cut into it for the digital inclinometer and it'll give you the wing angle or it'll give you the angle and so in that case or in this type of scenario that's what you would do because if you just broke your last hashtag front nose and you're having to borrow one, you're not going to send your driver back out, assuming there's no other damage, with a question mark for what you have for a front wing angle to then know if it even matches um, what you were running for COP. So it's something you'd take the time to measure and know, because assuming the race has a while to go, you're going to be making changes without knowing the number that you're starting with 
you would be just guessing. Hey, die or understeer? Well, I don't know. Uh, do we bolt in three turns, five turns? I don't know. Where are we at to begin with? Uh, so you'd take the time. Uh, let's see. Uh, John Wojnar, another great pal from the Pruday clan. Who would win in a uh, racing drum off Colton Herta, Will Power, or Abba Drummer and F1 driver Carl Slim Borgud? Well, for those of you who are old enough to know ABBA, uh, yes, their drummer did race in Formula One. He was okay. Uh, I would say Slim Borgid for sure. I mean, the guy was a pro and made zillions of dollars doing it, so of course he'd like beat the crap out of Herta or Power. But what's funny, though, is the thought of Herta and Borgid even being similar drumming-wise because, you know, ABBA known for kind of their easy listening disco type music herda who listens to nothing but you know old school punk yeah slightly different worlds uh let's see dustin marlowe uh you mentioned there's been significant uh motorsports related content released in documentaries here um talking about ford versus ferrari uppity the crew truth in 24 says what's the one story from the indycar paddock that you would most like to see adapted into a tv show or movie which real world indycar personalities would play themselves uh, and which professional actors would be involved um and you say for fun let's say wwe superstars would have to uh, be the professional actors i'm going to take the early part of this dustin uh i'm probably a little too tired in the brain to give this a good funny response right now i know that the things that i enjoy watching quite often in terms of documentaries or limited series it tends to be the past not i mean granted i love all kinds of stuff uh space and science fiction and whatever but the stuff that I really love getting stuck into is, say, what HBO's Boardwalk Empire, right? Um, Nucky Thompson. I know not, knew nothing about that time or era or part of the country and whatever else. Fascinating. And I, I know it's not real. It's drama. I know the character's based off of blah, blah, blah. But going back to whatever it was, the tw- 1920s, in Atlantic City and so on, I just, uh, I eat that stuff up. So, yeah, for hashtag me personally, I'd love to go back and do a indie 500-type series, serial docu-drama, docu-something around that. Uh, I don't know if I'm doing, like, the inaugural 1911, whatever else. I don't know if I'm going that far back, but I do like the late teens, early 20s. I've mentioned to y'all many times one of my heroes, Jimmy Murphy, as a driver. Uh, Harry Miller, of course, in terms of designer, inventor, Leo Goosens, and all the people at his facility. I think this would be pretty amazing because the rivalries back then were no joke real true make or break rivalries if we succeed at indianapolis our brand new or relatively new car company because they're all relatively new or brand new but our new idea the new our new twist on the automobile could take off and we could have sustained success 
and maybe become a big automotive business that lasts a big company or hey we sucked and we failed (laughs) we flamed out or we last a little while and went away but our new idea because this was the dawn of new ideas that that race not just the on track 500 miles part but the actual technological race the ingenuity the machining the production right a lot of people had good ideas how'd you make it how long did it take you to make it was the process strong enough good enough were the materials right where it was your were your inspectors correct were the quality control people good enough and so on and so forth um I'm sure that there's plenty of shysty boy, you know, huckster. Wow, that was shady. What what what's happening there? Type stuff went on. I'd love to go back there. Then, uh, granted, I don't know if it fits my sensibility right now because it feels like, you know, we, we've done the Mad Men thing uh, of you know '50s '60s style advertising and you know that slick kind of thing. I don't know if going back to the 60s uh, at Indy would fit right now or feel like, hey, didn't we already do that a little bit um, since Mad Men was so popular? But I mean, if you want to talk about real inventiveness, there's a rich period from about 61 to 72, 73, 74. Wow. So, yeah, that's almost science channel type stuff, history channel type stuff, where uh, the people involved, crazy and amazing, but the evolution uh, was so amazing of the vehicles going from front engine to rear engine to turbocharging to aerodynamic downforce, wings coming in, records being shattered. Um, Boy, a collision of eras as well. Those who said the heck with you and your rear engine cars, those are never going to work on wings. You know, you're like, hell, you're going to put them on my car. A lot of those, as we uh, spoke on the topic raised by our pal Jerry Sudduth earlier, you know, back in my day, you know, a lot of that, I like hell with you and your newfangled ideas and everything was better back when. There's a lot of that going on. I mean, I think there's something pretty cool in there as well. Um, it's too soon, but in 20 years, I really hope someone says 1990s, the 1990s. Why am I talking like Medea all of a sudden? The nineties cart were that, well, my gosh, we're going there. Uh, I will always say thank you to the Lord and the earth and all the things that allowed me to be born at a time where I got to see the cart IndyCar series from the mid eighties, really paying attention, but really there in person, uh, from the late eighties through, you know, early two thousands. So thankful to have seen such an amazing time, speed, technology, drivers, everything. So yeah, Uh, That's years down the road, but I definitely think some sort of let's go back to the late teens, early 20s, and, you know, mid, even late 20s. Um, So many ingenious designers, big, big brains, uh, the Einsteins of IndyCar racing, uh, plus some pretty amazing drivers tell their stories. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Then the 60s following.
All right, where else are we going here as uh, we're encroaching upon? Yeah, we're getting a little f- too far down the road for my liking. So let me grab uh, just one or two more, and then we will say farewell to next week. And as always, uh, let me know if uh, you want me to answer your question. If I didn't get to it, if it's a really good one and you really got to get it answered. Um, Vincent Anderson, you send in a couple here, um, and you're awesome wife does as well so i'll take your string of questions then i'm going to take one after that and uh or one or two after that don greg is not even a question mp what are the chances we finally get to hear the highly anticipated vince neal interview yeah don i'm sorry man i suck uh i'm i hope to get that done for maybe the month of may although there's no link between the two uh with vince but yeah um spoke with vince two years ago three years ago about his uh, brief Indy Lights career and racing career. Also spoke with his team owner in IndyCar, uh, Norm Turley, and also spoke with his driver coach, uh, the madcap Irishman that is Tommy Byrne. So, yeah, it's actually the three of them. So just take a little bit to put that together, Don. But, yeah, I'm sorry, man. Uh, among the, If you saw how many gigabytes of interviews that are still on my hard drive for the podcast, uh, I still have one, my first one. <clears throat> from january of 2016 uh sitting there unused at the person's request but uh yeah i'm sorry i hope uh vince you say saw the formula e race um race two this week and was wondering if the dragon penske team is roger penske's son's team yes it is uh you asked does penske corp have any connection to it i believe it's a hundred percent independent uh pmc penske media corporation and j penske yeah, I believe it's just wholly J's and J's alone. Um, so it seems like IndyCar could learn a lot on how to get engine manufacturers into its series. Yeah, uh, I can't argue with you there. Uh, let's see. Uh, in your Jimmy McMillan interview, uh, Vincent goes on to say, did it come up on why IndyCar was so slow to announce anything or throw support behind uh, the social movements last summer? Uh, also mentioned that he enjoyed the interview and hopes to hear an interview follow-up uh, with Mr. McMillan later this year. Didn't get into that because Jimmy wasn't even in that position. Uh, so I, I don't think, or in his position of chief diversity officer. So uh, I didn't think to ask him that, Vincent, because I wouldn't want to hang that question on someone who wasn't in a roller position to uh, do the things that you're asking about back then reality is my man that too often in life we don't do things until there's an urgent need to do them so why wasn't there a race for equality and change while the ntt in a car series was owned by the holman george family or led by this person or that person over the years most people respond to the thing that moves them and do things to help the things that move them. Keep this super short, but you've heard me mention, hopefully on the podcast before Vincent, that I totally understand and appreciate why, when we're talking about social actions, in this case, charitable actions, being involved with society, trying to 
make positive changes in the name of helping others that I totally respect and understand why there are some teams and or drivers who choose pets, want to raise money to help, uh, what, cancer research for cats and dogs, uh, who want to raise money to donate to an animal shelter. Totally get it. I mean, we've got two cats. We love them to death. You all know this. They mess up the show on almost a weekly basis. Love it, love it, love it. Uh, and appreciate why folks would want to do that. How could you not watch any of those commercials on late night TV and have your heart melt and say, of course I'm going to send $50 or uh, $10 to something to help the kitties or the dogs or the whatever that need it. But I then say, okay, but your fellow man and fellow woman is sleeping under a, a bridge tonight. Uh, and probably in not a great place in life. Why help pets compared to your fellow man or woman? I don't reconcile that in my head. If folks truly just pick one thing, which is often the case, but not always the case. But I understand it because for some that thing in their heart that connects most to I want to do something to help is at that furry thing looking up at them or snuggling next to them or keeping them warm or playing fetch with. So helping one's fellow man or woman, uh, not that most folks are against that, but hey, I get the connection because who doesn't love their pet more than, you know, almost anything in the world. So that's what you get. The thing that you care about, love the most, pulls at your heartstrings the most, that tends to be what you invest your time and money into. Um, Terms of the social movements that took place over the summer and why is an IndyCar way ahead of the curve then or before, whether it's showing support, investing, outreach, taking part, you name it, would just say that that's not a space in greater society that most racing series have ever cared about or participated in. Uh, through all this, some of us, myself included, learned about IMS's long-standing relationship with uh, NXG Motorsports, uh, the program run by Coach Rod Reed, who is now in charge of the Force Indy uh, Road to Indy program. But in terms of greater involvement, yeah. Um, I'd also say, being super frank with you here, Vincent, I outside of the series at a kind of, hey, we run the thing and we can choose the things that we get involved in, uh, they're doing things. They're making first steps, which is great. I don't know if I've seen much of anything within the paddock. Um, I don't think, you know, the things from that kicked off last summer and had some limited engagement. Um, I don't think I've seen much stick. Uh, So, like I said, uh, whether it's donating to a homeless shelter, donating to a pet shelter, whether it's cancer research, which... You all know that I do, I should say I, my wife and I, but primarily you all, many of you who donate to those projects, 
uh, cancer research and helping in that regard is something that is of great importance, but it's not the only thing my wife and I do. We don't talk about those things, but just know that we do a lot of things that are just, you know, uh, diverse in, in terms of trying to help. Um, you do the things that are important to you. And I would say you hope that uh, some of the things you mentioned here, Vincent, uh, become important more. Uh, let's see. You say podcasts love to tell behind-the-scenes stories on events that happened 5, 10, 20 years ago. What are three behind-the-scenes stories you would love to know more about? I don't know, Vincent. I'll have to think about that. Uh, I'll have to think about it, but I don't know if I'll have an answer for that. Uh, your wife, Wendy. Hey, Wendy. Says, uh, will there be any IndyCar fundraisers for the uh, uh, WMFC.ca Foundation in honor of James Hinchcliffe's father, who recently passed away i don't know if you're asking wendy if i will be doing any or if there will be uh some done by indycar or those who participate um this is the uh, wmfc uh is something related to a very specific uh very rare form of cancer that took the immensely awesome jeremy hinchcliffe from us I don't know, but I do know that I have uh, still have a couple of things uh, that need to be put up for auction. Might do that over the weekend if I can to get a couple items up. Uh, a couple of those things already have targets for where they're going to go charit- charity-wise, but um, maybe I'm going to reroute that here. It's a great, great idea, and I'll catch up with Hinch on that too. Uh, All right, let me catch one or two more, and then uh, we're going to say farewell, and damn it, well, um, uh, let's just pretend that we didn't go past the two-hour mark, Uh, but that's what happens when I'm a little bit unstructured, but that's okay. Please forgive me. I suck. You know it, but uh, nonetheless, we get together and do this just a little bit every week. Uh, let me see. Where do we go for our last? I'm looking for a killer question to close the show. And uh, I don't know if I have anything that is jumping out right away as a killer close to the show. Okay, I think I can roll a couple of questions here into what would be the length of one answer, I think. I'm going to try. Appreciate to respond. Hey, pal. Second time. Engine control strategies. Do all Chevy engines have the same engine management strategies, base fuel map, fuel trim levels, etc., across all teams? Uh, and he says, and for Honda as well. But does each team work with their resident engine, uh, engine engineer to develop custom engine mapping? Yes, indeed. So this is actually a big area of development. Throttle response, huge area where the drivers, well, there are some drivers who focus on this more than others, but yes. So in terms of how to make spark, how to make pistons go up and down, not an area that uh, each manufacturer is going to customize for their teams through ECUs, but definitely engine response uh, is certainly a huge area of customization and knowing that some drivers, I shouldn't say some drivers, every driver treats the throttle, treats the brake, treats turn-in, treats braking, 
differently, some vastly different than others, yes. Not only a great relationship with your engine engineer, your engine technician, but also there are some stars within both camps, within Chevy and Honda, that are just known for really... It's Again, it's not unique to IndyCar. It's, it's any place where this... A true customization happens. There are just some where you go, yo, no, I want that guy. I want her. She's boy. She is amazing uh, because they know, right? They know it's frankly no different than a race engineer and a driver. They might be using words to communicate with you. There might even be data you can look at and parse information from, but there's some where you just go, okay, there's a feeling that comes across how you use those words. Um, how looking at the the granular parts of the data and connecting it to the words you're using of how you want the response to come in um those engineers who can get the most and really tailor the response to a driver's need yes so the answer is yes and yeah there are stars within those ranks too who are better than others but that's not a criticism it's just life uh let's see ej unfortunately can't see the toronto indy happening again this year uh yes do i know if indycar has any backup plans i don't know yes i i was alerted by many that uh toronto has said no major events through july 1st although the honda indy toronto wasn't listed as one of the events that will not be taking place in what i read the question is well it takes a month or so to set up the thing is that something they would even allow uh, knowing that they would, you know, need considerable amount of time to put on the, uh, what is it, mid-July race. So, yeah, question mark for sure. I'm hoping to get some clarity here. Let's see. I'm going to close. Uh, Drew Wetzel, you ask, why isn't uh, the Halo being used in USF 2000 and Pro 2000? I don't know. Um, I'm guessing money, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'll get uh, deeper insights there again. One of a thousand things that I just haven't asked Lance Snyder, you are going to have to send in the thing you've already vilified me for not getting to about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to close here uh, with a question from Right Turn Lover, uh, pal of ours from Europe who often listens to our weekend sports car show, asks or says, why abhor, spec, and cherish technical freedom? Why, of all things, are dampers the one big free thing in IndyCar? says they're invisible too obscure for commentary and not attracting industry money yet hugely expensive uh everything you say from invisible onwards thousand percent accurate my friend the reason why though has nothing to do with any of those things it is with a spec vehicle you have fixed options aerodynamically on how to tune and balance the car. But thanks to, in particular, the latest aero kit, uh, one that IndyCar had a direct hand in making come to life along with Delara, they're able to, at most tracks, Indy 500 might be a bit of a bone to pick by some, but more or less everywhere IndyCars go, there are enough options in angles and angles and stuff to play with aerodynamically at the front and the back of the cars to create the aero balance that is needed to suit the driving style 
of all drivers. Uh, so that part's good. The mechanical balance. Well, that's the one area that is super important. Probably the most important uh, of all the options. Tuning options on a car to make a Sebastian Bourdais very happy all the way to a Scott Dixon very happy. And those two men have the most diametrically opposed chassis handling needs of any two drivers in any series that I know of. Scott needs the front of the car to be super positive and he will he doesn't like a car he doesn't want the car to be oversteering uh, that's not something he asks for make the tail end come out and make me be super dixie drifter but it comes with the territory of wanting the front of the car to be super positive on turn in and his hands are so fast he will deal and tidy up the oversteer to the point of almost not even seeing it that's what he needs to go quickly our pal french fry thousand per, just invert everything he needs the back of the car to be glued to the track not moving at all crazy stable just giving him nothing but the warm fuzzies at the back of the car is never going to break away and he will manage the car through the corner with understeer and so you again these guys it's night and day it's like upside down indy car depending on which one you like the most but just i don't see how the two of them could drive the same car okay how do you allow these two people to have those things happen that they need that's through damping now of course there's a lot of interrelated things that being obviously anti-roll bar that being the third spring uh obviously you have did i mention the spring main springs already but uh yes uh you do have suspension geometry changes you can make obviously there's ride height there's all the toes and cameras and blah 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 blah. but in terms of true getting into the creating the feel the mechanical feel of the car the call it other half the non-aero half of how the car performs speaks to them and does the thing that they need to be able to go quickly well that one thing that stands out that is imminently tunable to make everyone from a scott dixon to the newest rookie who's never done it doesn't know what they know or what they need dampers are really the answer to that question so that's the reason why right turn lover that's why these things don't make sense that are invisible too obscure for commentary not attracting industry money and are hugely expensive that's why that's the area they left open because when it comes to personalizing and achieving the driver's need for handling in non-aerodynamic manners well dampers are the answer thank y'all for sending in your questions look forward to whatever y'all send in for next week part of me wonders should i have an all catch-up episode at some point in time here soon the i'm not taking questions on new stuff just send in everything i didn't get to that you really want to have answered part of me wonders if i should do a extra episode just for those but nonetheless, thank you all for sending in what you sent in. Really do appreciate you uh, taking the time, giving me this fun platform to share 
and hopefully not suck too much. Until next week with our listener Q&A episode, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast, Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Sports.com.